Hey there. Today's episode started with a question that seemed pretty of the moment and very much our kind of question. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. How does that affect my insurance coverage? And we found a couple of things. One, it's probably not changing your insurance, like not yet. And for a lot of people, not at all. But if you get your insurance from work, there's no one answer. We've entered an extremely weird period, and we're going to be here for a while. And two, producer Emily Pizzacreta's reporting for this episode shows there's actually another question, like a whole other story here that turns out to be even more our kind of thing. Hey, Emily. Hey, Dan. And yep, this is a story about people organizing to help each other get the health care they need, building a huge network, and making the most of limited resources in the face of so much powerful opposition. Yeah, and look, however you happen to feel about abortion itself, I hope you're going to agree that's the kind of story we can all learn from. This is An Arm and a Leg, a show about why healthcare costs so freaking much and what we can maybe do about it. I'm Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter, and I like a challenge. So our job on this show is to take one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life and bring you something entertaining, empowering, and useful. Just to start off with what's not changing in terms of insurance and abortion, a lot of states had already passed laws against insurance plans covering abortion, even before the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade. Right. And there's a piece of federal law called the Hyde Amendment that says federal funds can never go to pay for abortion. So that cancels out abortion coverage for anyone on, say, TRICARE. That's insurance for folks in the military. Yes. And also Medicare. Medicare? Yes. There's 9 million people younger than 65 on Medicare, people with disabilities. But the biggest number of people this affects are people on Medicaid. Whoa, Medicaid. So states pay for some of Medicaid. Does that make a difference? It does. Some states put their own money into paying for abortions in their Medicaid programs. But if your state has a ban on abortion now, they're not doing that. And the same thing goes for insurance plans people buy on the Obamacare marketplace. Because when people get subsidies on those plans, it's the federal government paying for those subsidies. So much about your abortion coverage depends on what state you live in. Yeah. And again, all of that was true before abortion became illegal in some states. So no change. And if you live in a state where abortion is still legal, nothing's changing there either. But here is where we get to the weird part. Because... Most people who get insurance from work, their insurance isn't regulated by the states. It's a piece of legal arcana that has a bunch of weird impacts on us. But here, it raises this question. If you live in a state where abortion is now illegal, but your insurance from work isn't regulated by that state, what now? And I mean, we've heard about big name companies like Amazon saying, we'll do what it takes to make sure our workers can get access to abortion, help them travel to places where abortion is legal. But how is that supposed to even work? I spent some time talking with people who get paid to consult with the big cheeses at all kinds of companies, help them design their employee benefits, and in this case, maybe redesign on the fly. For instance. My name is Roberta Casper Watson. I like to use all three names. And she's a partner at the Wagner Law Group. And the laws that govern this kind of health insurance have been her specialty for 40 years. I asked her what happens with health insurance now that Roe is overturned. The short answer to what's going to happen is we don't know. Yeah, here's the mechanics. When companies offer to pay for their workers to still access abortion, they're not writing you a check. For a bunch of legal reasons and tax savings, they're going to run it through their health plan. And the fact that lots of big employer plans aren't regulated by state governments gives them a lot of leeway. 
Roberta says they're still incurring some legal risk by trying to work around state restrictions. There are going to be test cases. And, you know, an employer who wants to take any action should think about whether it wants to put itself at risk of being one of the test cases. Because there's a lot to test. For instance, a Texas law from 2021 gave private citizens the right to sue anybody involved in an abortion for 10,000 bucks. And the Supreme Court said that was okay. But it leaves questions open like, what if your business is based in Seattle, but you've got workers in Texas? Could you get sued? It's not clear that you can, but it's not 100% clear that you can't either. And some states are contemplating laws that would make it a crime to help somebody get an abortion. Could an employer get caught up in that? Nobody knows yet. That's the point. Roberta says she tells companies, you tweak your health plan to help workers in a state like Texas travel for an abortion, you could become a defendant in a test case. And usually on most topics, that kind of a statement kills their interest. Uh, On this topic, it's not killing their interest. We have a number of clients that are willing. So if they're willing to take some risk, then I have a multi-page list of advice that I give them of things to think about how they want to structure it. I will not be going into what's on that multi-page list here, but there is also this. Even if you're an employer that's ready to jump through all those legal hoops to tweak your health plan and take on some of those legal risks, you've got another task. you got to get your insurance company to sell you a plan with the tweaks you want. And folks like Roberta tell me insurance companies are not offering new policy options to help workers travel to get abortion care. You want something like that as part of your health plan, you're negotiating with companies like United or Aetna for a custom deal. And a company the size of Amazon can presumably get a custom deal. So I asked Roberta, would smaller companies have a harder time? It depends. It, it depends on some combination of their motivation and how big and important you are. I mean, an employer with 50 employees probably can't get much of anything, yeah. no matter how badly it wants it. So if you live in a state where abortion is now illegal, what your coverage looks like depends on some combination of what your employer wants, how bad they want it, and how much clout they have with insurance companies to get a custom deal. And on how various test cases unfold over who knows how long. So, Dan, you're basically saying abortion is like everything else in American healthcare, only a little more so. What you get access to is pretty much 100% not up to you and subject to change at any time. Uh, yeah. But abortion is also different, isn't it? I mean, insurance coverage for all kinds of healthcare is spotty in the U.S., but people still use their insurance to pay for most of their healthcare here. For abortion, research shows that people use commercial insurance, meaning insurance from their job or the Obamacare marketplace, only about 14% of the time. The vast majority of people having an abortion pay out of pocket. And Emily, this is probably where we should mention you spent a bunch of years working for Planned Parenthood. Yes. Which does give people a clue about where you're coming from on this topic. And it's also a credential. You come to this knowing a lot. So why don't people tend to use their insurance to pay for abortion? I mean, even if lots of people can't, lots of people could. I talked with Rachel Jones. She's a researcher on health insurance coverage and abortion with the Guttmacher Institute. And she told me that one reason is that people have high deductibles. If your insurance hasn't kicked in, you're stuck using cash. That's not super surprising. But another big reason is privacy. So maybe you're on your parents' insurance or your partner's insurance, and they're opposed to abortion. 
Or maybe they're fine with it, but you just don't want to talk about it with them. Insurance might send one of those explanation of benefit letters home. Are you going to be there to intercept it before anyone sees it? Yeah, I had not thought of that before. Or like, maybe you don't even know abortion is something you can even use your insurance for. In one study Rachel did, her team polled people in the waiting room at an abortion clinic about why they were paying out of pocket. And a third of them didn't know whether their insurance covered abortion. Huh. Did not know. So it's a relevant question then. How much does an abortion cost out of pocket? It depends where you go and how far along your pregnancy is and what kind of abortion you're having. But generally speaking, the average price for a first trimester abortion, that's the most common kind of abortion, is $500. Okay, so in terms of the kind of medical bills we talk about in this show, that's, I mean, on the low side, but that's only because medical bills get so wild so quickly. 500 bucks, that's a lot of money for most people. Totally, especially on short notice. Because abortions get more expensive and much, much harder to access the further along you are. Plus, like, no one wants to be pregnant longer than they need to be. So people have to scramble. And Dan, we often hear about people scrambling to figure out how to pay for health care. It's kind of a sick, sad American pastime. <laughs> but here's where abortion is different again. Because not only have people been organizing for decades to protect access to abortion, some groups have organized expressly to help people pay for abortion, to help people in the midst of the scramble. They're called abortion funds. And this is where things get very arm and a leg, in my opinion, because these are examples of people organizing to help each other get the medical care they need when they need it without going completely broke. And this is a whole network of people who've been doing exactly that for years under tough circumstances. One of the folks you talked with now runs the National Network of Abortion Funds. And we will start with her origin story right after this. This episode of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit newsroom about healthcare in America. KHN is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit. We'll have a little more information about KHN at the end of this episode. And this and every episode of An Arm and a Leg is made possible by you. Your donations are the majority of our budget. Thank you. And right now, thanks to a program called Newsmatch, those donations count for double. You can donate right now at armandalegshow.com slash support. Emily, you spoke with Oriaku Njaku. Tell us about that conversation. Oriaku's story, the story of how she started an abortion fund and became the director of a national network of abortion funds, starts when she worked as a receptionist at an abortion provider. At first, it seemed like just a typical customer service job in an upscale neighborhood in Atlanta. I was like, oh, I talk to rich white women every day at the spa that I'm working at, like transferable skills. It'll be great. And my eyes were like open so wide in that moment on the very first clinic day. She says right away, she noticed that even in the fancy neighborhood, many poor women of color were coming in for appointments. And she fielded calls all day long of people needing to cancel or reschedule because they couldn't scrape together enough money, either for the abortion itself, to travel there in time, or for childcare. All of the hoops and hassle that people have to like navigate through is really, I mean, it, it's shameful. And this is not how people should have to access basic health care. So I was like, we should start an abortion fund. She and four co-founders started ARC Southeast, 
an abortion fund now supporting patients in six states. But it started much smaller than that. I was so naive. <laughs> oh, so, so naive. I was like, if we can just get like $2,000 to be able to help people with rides and pay for some abortions, like, that'll be awesome. $2,000 did not go as far as she expected. I remember one of my first abortions that we funded was like $1,500, which was a young person traveling from Mississippi to get an abortion with their mom. And it was, I mean, not only the cost of the abortion, but all of the logistical expenses. I was like, well, I thought $2,000 was going to be great for a couple of bus tickets. This is definitely not enough. Over six years, Oriaku and their co-founders raised a ton of money and from 2016 to 2022 helped support more than 26,000 people with their abortions. But figuring out how to help that many people was not easy. They had to make a lot of hard decisions. Like, do they fund 100% of medical and travel costs for a small number of people or distribute smaller amounts to more people? You know, we definitely made the decision to fund a larger amount of people, but also to work in collaboration with other abortion funds within our network to make sure that those costs and the logistical needs even were fully being met. Which meant their money went a lot further. But it also meant a lot of coordinating, connecting with other abortion funds and volunteers in other states to match people's specific needs. There's not a monolithic abortion experience. Everyone has various obstacles, including fear, shame, stigma that contribute to getting an abortion. Oriaku became executive director of the National Network of Abortion Funds in June, less than two weeks before the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade. Whoa, so she took on a big job. Emily, how does all this work on a local level? Like, what are the nuts and bolts of what these funds do? Well, there are over 90 local funds that make up the network, and they all work a little differently. But here's the basic idea. You book an appointment with an abortion provider, something that was definitely easier a few months ago than it is now. But once you have your appointment, you go online and you search for an abortion fund in your area. Or maybe the abortion provider themselves gives you a number to call when you tell them you don't have the money. From there, the abortion fund goes on a full court press to help you get to your appointment. Maybe it's money directly to you for a bus ticket, like Oriaku initially thought. Or maybe it's money sent directly to the abortion provider in your name. Or maybe it's just the name of a safe, free place to stay near your appointment. Always the goal is to get people in whatever situation they are in to get them to meet the appointment date that they've set. That's Tyler Barberin. If you've ever left a message for the New Orleans Abortion Fund and got a call back, you may have talked to her. As much as like calling strangers kind of gives me the ick, it's still, uh, it, it, it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth it to her because she's been in their shoes. She remembers what it was like needing an abortion and not knowing how to pay for it. She was broke and overwhelmed. She ended up getting cash from her mom to pay for it. The relief of having someone to rely on when she was under a lot of pressure has stayed with her ever since. And she decided she wanted to be that person for someone else. Being able to serve the function that my mom served for me um, in that moment, that was like, it felt very chaotic, but to know I was going to meet my appointment date, it was just a sigh of relief. Now Tyler and her colleagues at the fund are taking on a monster task, getting people in the Gulf South, 
where abortion has been almost completely banned since Roe was overturned, to appointments hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles away, and reassuring them that that's even allowed. People are scared. They don't know what they can do. They don't know what is legal. But she says the work hasn't changed as much as you might think. Traveling really long distances for abortion care was already the norm for people in the South. A lot of people were not living in a world where Roe actually materialized and meant that they could access um, abortion care. A lot of people were already in the situation that now we as a country are grappling with. Which means the work is tough and has been for a while. Tyler was a volunteer when she started, but the organization eventually decided that the need for help was so great and volunteer management so complicated that it was worth bringing on staff full-time to work these calls. Plus, it just seemed like the right thing to do. We didn't want to ask for a lot of labor from people without compensating them. The way Tyler tells it, economic justice is really central to how abortion funds see their mission. From paying their employees a living wage to making sure no one who calls them has to justify their needs. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions to get an idea of the logistics, but I also believe you, you know, like people are also very used to having to like bear all of their trauma or bear all of their pain in order to be deemed worthy of care. Abortion funds typically have no means testing. Here's Oriaku. To ask people, what's the total size of your household? What is your monthly income? Those questions are absolutely not necessary in determining whether or not someone deserves to get support for their basic health care. Reproductive justice is also economic justice. Any income requirements means testing, there, there really is no place for that. Reproductive justice. That's something Oriaku and Tyler both talk about a lot. It's the larger movement that this network sees itself as a part of. Reproductive justice is a movement led by women of color. It started in the 1990s. It's sort of distinct from the reproductive rights movement, led by organizations like NARAL and Planned Parenthood, which, especially in the 90s, was centered around the concept of choice. Reproductive justice changes the frame. It recognizes that for lots of people, particularly people of color, Reproductive choices are constrained by more than just abortion laws. It emphasizes not just the right to have an abortion, but the right to have children if you want them and bring them up in safe and healthy communities. So it's access to abortion, but also... Things like trans justice, disability justice, economic justice, and being able to get basic health care or to get jobs or to have affordable housing. Oriaku says this broad vision drew her in before she ever took those first phone calls at that clinic in Atlanta. Actually, her interest in working at an abortion clinic grew out of an experience at a reproductive justice conference. That was the first time that I saw all of the things that would make me feel like I'm other, all of the things that would make me feel different, whether that's me being a first-generation Igbo Nigerian-American a Black woman, a queer person in the South, a fat person in this country. There's a place for all of those identities um, to be honored and respected. They say this shared sense of purpose and radical inclusivity is a part of what draws people in and keeps them involved. Even though we know that the work is happening in this ridiculously hostile legal and political climate, 
the knowing what we're fighting for, knowing what we're working towards is what gives me and so many people doing this work a lot of hope. Yeah. And Dan? Yeah. Oriaku mentioned a hostile legal climate. And earlier, you were talking about those legal uncertainties that employers are looking at if they want to help their workers travel for abortion. Obviously, abortion funds have to worry about those, too. Oh, yeah. And, you know, employers get some legal cover by running the whole operation through an employee health plan. Abortion funds do not get that shield. So, uh, Emily, what's their plan? When I asked Tyler about that, she said she didn't like to think about it too much, which is fair. She says she's trying to stay focused on the work in front of her. But she knows other groups are looking really closely at the way these laws could change and developing legal strategies. You know, I am struck by the fact that people have been organizing these funds for more than 25 years. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it's always been both a big swing, like the whole idea of reproductive justice, and very much like one step at a time. Like, you know, a lot of people seem to get involved as volunteers. Oriaku's like, let's start an abortion fund. Yep. In a recent annual report, the National Network of Abortion Funds said about half of its member funds are run by volunteers. That is impressive as an example of people coming together to take on something big and then sticking with it, sticking together. Yeah. And it's still uphill. That same report said that abortion funds helped tens of thousands of people, but that that was only a little more than half of the people who called looking for help. Wow. Emily, thank you for bringing this story to us. It was my pleasure. I learned so much doing this story. Me too. You know, we've been reporting a lot on people who start something. It starts small. I'm thinking about folks like Jared Walker, of course, who just started off collecting a dollar at a time to help one family at a time. And who now says his group has wiped out $20 million in medical bills by helping people get charity care. Which is, and this is wild, which is still a tiny number compared to the amount of need out there for this exact thing. Like, hospitals have admitted to billing patients for almost $2 billion that could have been forgiven through charity care in a single year. So it's all, like, it's sobering and inspiring. Because it's a lot of one step at a time. You know, it reminds me of talking to Jenny Spring from Cincinnati. She raised money to pay off a million dollars in medical debt for her neighbors with, you know, fundraisers like a taco bar and homemade tags for Christmas gifts. And she said, why not? What else have you got to do? And here's where I make a pitch. Because what's become the project of this show, figuring out how we can help each other survive this, you know, mess of a healthcare system. It's big. There's not exactly an easy, simple path. So if you're listening right now, thank you. It means a lot that you're on this journey with us. And there's so many next steps to take. And here's where you can help. Because this month and next, the Institute for Nonprofit News is running a program called Newsmatch, which is doubling anything you give us right now, which is huge for us. And if you've never given to the show before, your money can go even farther. Because if you make a contribution of any amount right now, not only will Newsmatch double it, you'll be helping us scoop up a $1,000 bonus. The folks at Newsmatch have said, if 100 people who've never donated before make a donation in November or December, not only are all those donations doubled, we get an extra 1000 bucks. Now that's a good deal. Any amount you give us gets us closer. The place to go is armandalegshow.com slash support. That's armandalegshow.com slash support. I'll catch you soon. So then, take care of yourself. 
This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by Emily Pisacreta and me, Dan Weissman, and edited by Marion Wang. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Anna Raimunda is our audio wizard. Our music is by Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. Gabrielle Healy is our managing editor for audience. She edits the First Aid Kit newsletter. B. Bosco is our consulting director of operations. Sarah Balama is our operations manager. This season of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America. It's an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation. And KHN is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit. They share an ancestor with 20th century industrialist Henry J. Kaiser. When he died, he left half his money to the foundation that later created Kaiser Health News. You can learn more about him and Kaiser Health News at armandalegshow.com slash Kaiser. Diane Weber is national editor for broadcast at Kaiser Health News. She's editorial liaison to this show. Thanks to Public Narrative. That's a Chicago-based group that helps journalists and nonprofits tell better stories for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about Public Narrative at www.publicnarrative.org. And now it's time to shout out some of the people who've made new donations in just the last couple of weeks. I love getting to do this during Newsmatch. Thanks this time to R.D., Charlie Myerson, the one and only D.B. Cooper, Beth Morgan, Peg Harper, Emmy the Brooklyn Wonder Dog, Sally Lewis, Lisa Simmons, Frida K. Furman, Claire Thevino, Ruth Reinkamoff, Alex Evans, Joanna Mantello, Brett Barranco, Karen Seidel, Elizabeth Dutta, William Hay, Catherine Tenza, Daniel Bolta, Elizabeth Maine, Michael Grubbs, Mary Clark, Lee Moss, nurse practitioner, David Cintron, Nancy Harrington, Sarah Russi, Helen Taylor, Fiona Wilmot, Benjamin Pincus, Sully Park, Terry Hamilton, Sean Gowers, Kent Doherty, Jim Jusco, Darcy Hall, Madeline Wu, Michelle Y. Walker-Wade, Nancy Johnson, Polly Noonan, Francisco Okoisen, Barbara Cuneo, Ellen Zemmel, Brianna Gnapo, Rosemary Rogers, and Christine Ebert-Santos. Thank you so much. 